take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it. What a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover, and Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. It's the Cats Whiskers. Hello, I'm Wes Cusworth and welcome to the Cats Whiskers podcast with the special guest for this episode, Jason Snell. It's great to have you on board, whether you're hearing us through any of a number of podcasting platforms or on Sport FM in Perth. Let's welcome the panel of Megan Holtz, Mark Brunger and Anthony Petkovic. Megan, what did you make of the Cats 10-goal hammering of the ladder-leading Port Adelaide? It was Absolutely sensational, Wes. Such exciting football. So good to see. And Geelong is starting to really play some four-quarter footy, which has impressed me. And uh, I've got a lot to say about uh, Tom Hawkins, but I think Mark would like to, to talk about his performance. Welcome, Anthony. Firstly, remarkably, you tipped a result of this nature. What did you base that on? Well, it's a bit like the gambler boasting about his single winning wager and omitting to tell you about all of his losses. But uh, seriously, Wes, anyone who has followed the Cats as I have for the best part of 50 years has learned to recognise what I call the Geelong mood. There's an intoxicating feeling when the planets align and the team is on song, and believe me, they are on song. Anthony, I also want to ask you, what does a victory of this nature do in terms of Geelong's premiership ranking in your eyes, particularly given the fact that we also suffered losses in the not-so-distant past, to West Coast Eagles and also Collingwood in Perth? Well, that's going to be the challenge for Geelong, beating the really good sides. West Coast are looking ominous. And, of course, Collingwood, as we know, have, have since had a lot of injury problems. But I, I suspect that Geelong are right up there. They're certainly in the discussion when it comes to the flag. Mark Runger, welcome to you. Megan will no doubt want to chime in on this one, but I want to go to you firstly. I know you love a big Ford and the Tomahawk delivered in spades. Was it the best performance by a power forward this season? Well, Wes, can I just check with you how long this podcast has to run? What's our time limit here? Because I could probably talk for 45 minutes about uh, Tom Hawkins. Uh, I think it is uh, possibly one of the best. I still, I still think that uh, Josh Kennedy's 10-goal bag earlier this season was probably still the best performance by a forward. But I think Tom is in exceptional form at the moment, and, and I think 
Chris Scott did say that he's in some of the best form that, that he's seen him in. Tom's body's right. He's looking at a million dollars at the moment. He's all over the ground. Uh, he's such a, a hard person to get out of the way if he gets a one-on-one. And, and we had Pagan's Paddock, of course, with Wayne Carey back in the years, but it's now... Uh, uh, Tommy's field at the moment with uh, the Geelong Football Club just clearing out the forward line and letting the big fella do his thing. And boy, gee, wasn't he doing it on uh, Monday night? This is a litmus test for the Brownlow medal voting, you know. If Hawkins doesn't get the three votes for best on ground in this game, we should scrap the whole medal. Couldn't agree more. Megan, what are your thoughts? Obviously, you were impressed. Yeah, and Anthony makes a really good point there. I was very interested in the commentary after the match, and I can't recall who it was, but one of them didn't even put uh, Hawkins in the top three, which was unbelievable in my opinion because, like Mark said, I think absolutely career-best form. He is moving better than he ever has, and he has the confidence to go with it as well. And can I just say one thing to uh, a person whose name's going to come up later on in our uh, team of the week, the social distancing heroes and villains, a certain South Australian former Port Adelaide player who's in the media at the moment. Don't get any silly ideas about uh, what Geelong's up to at the moment and a couple of other people suggesting that maybe Essendon should start throwing its... uh, it's a uh, hook towards uh, Tom Hawkins. I can guarantee you 100% Tom Hawkins is a one-club player and he won't be going anywhere. Thank you very much. End of story. I'm sure Kane Corns has taken on board your advice, Mark. Uh, he will have heard of your reputation, no doubt. Well, <laughs> of course, later in the program, we will have team talk, social distancing, heroes and villains, as Mark has mentioned. But first, we're fortunate to have the chance to catch up with former cat, Jason Snell. Recruited to the Cats from the Eastern Rangers with pick 34 of the 1995 AFL Draft, Jason Snell played 68 games for Geelong. Initially recruited as a midfielder, he was also used to good effect as a forward, where he booted 62 goals, including five in a quarter against Port Adelaide. Sadly, Jason Snell is best remembered by most football fans for an horrific career-ending compound fracture of the leg sustained on Easter Monday at the MCG in 2001. A career full of potential over at just 23 years of age. Jason Snell, welcome to the Cats Whiskers. Thank you for having me, team. Look forward to it. It's wonderful. It was a career filled with so much potential, Jason, only to be cut short, but one which you must still be immensely proud of. Yeah, look, I think you get better as uh, every year as you've retired, I think, too. And and now, obviously, with my kids growing up a little bit, so I've got a 13-year-old boy, Daniel, who, who loves his football and and my 11-year-old daughter, very much into the netball side. But you, you get brought back into that sporting realm again and people asking you questions about uh, what you did and how you did and all the rest of it. So, look, it, I'm, I'm extremely proud of, of making the grade, no doubt about it. Um, would have loved to have continued on a lot further than, than the... Uh, the 68 games that I played, but um, you know, you do the, uh, you, you get dealt some cards sometimes and they're, they're not good ones. So unfortunately that wasn't to be. Jason, tell us about your early football days, your junior footy, who were your main influences and, and how did you find yourself at Geelong? Yeah, so I, I grew up around a football family. So dad uh, played football uh, well into his thirties. Um, in fact, I think he played Super Rules when he was 35, but I think the, the age uh, to get into Super Rules was 38, but he, they reckon he looked 38, so he, 
he kept playing a little bit older. So um, we were always around a football club. So a manual fo- football club in Oakley is, is where Dad played and, and me and my uh, my brothers and, and later on then my sister were uh, were always there running around the, the Oval and, and creating mayhem. And we then, um, when I was in, uh, when it was a great prep actually, we moved up to Upway in the Dandenongs um, and I played my junior football with, uh, with Upway Tacoma. Um, so Damien Hardwick from Upway Tacoma, as is Rory Sloan. So we all uh, grew up and actually Damien's uh, dad, Noel Hardwick, uh, coached me in, in the, uh, the under-18s when I was there, when I wasn't representing Eastern Rangers. So um, I went to Kerry Grammar for year 11 and 12, so played school football at, uh, at Kerry Grammar. And then I was, uh, was on the Eastern Rangers list for, for three years. So I got there as a, as a 15-year-old and, uh, and played through to, uh, to, to the draft year. Um, and in terms of influences, look, it, I was a mad Melbourne fan. We, we loved the Ds and, and we used to go a, a fair bit and you know, loved the likes of, of Gary Lyon, even before him, Robbie Flower, um, were absolute idols of mine and, and uh, was lucky enough uh, to play my first and unfortunately my last uh, against Melbourne. So uh, uh, certainly they were, they were, that was the, uh, the team that I loved and, and wanted, to, uh, wanted to play with. Jason, let's talk a little bit about the Eastern Rangers uh, for the moment. Uh, now, we realise that the, uh, the under-18 competition has been a, just a fantastic breeding ground for, uh, for AFL footballers. And, and these days they walk straight out of under-18 football and uh, debut round one the following season. Uh, was that your experience at the time? Or, or tell us a little bit about what the, what the under-18 competition was for you and, and how long did you think it would take to get to AFL level? Look, you don't really know when you're coming out of out of the under eighteen competition, and and I'd had a reasonably good year that year, and and was was a co captain of the the club and um, represented the the, uh, the state as well in the, the under eighteen comp as well. So I had a really really good year, and you you, you come into the AFL system, and, and you're then the uh, the little fish in the in the big pond. Um, you know, you're walking around with the likes of, of Gary Ablett and Billy Brownless and. Um, you know, uh, John Barnes, all these sort of guys, Gary Hocking, uh, walking around the club room. So you do have to earn your stripes. And, and the uh, the year that I was I was drafted was a was a lot later. Um, so I didn't get down to the club until December. So I had a, a pretty short lead in from a pre season point of view. Um, but um, it, look, you work hard, and, and you. I was lucky enough to to play a few practice games in the uh, the senior team and. And did okay, and, and um, again was then was lucky enough to, to actually play in, in round one. Do, do you look at um, players like Patrick Cripps and that these days that that just walk straight out of the under eighteen competition and are are leading players at their clubs almost uh, fresh out of the junior competition? Oh, look, the junior competition is fantastic, isn't it? I mean, to, to be able to do that, to prepare players that way, to to go straight into to league football is um, is amazing. I think that the key difference now is that. It is very much, you know, an athlete's game, and as a youngster, you you, you can bring that into to AFL football. I think that the difference between uh, the the modern game today and and um, you know high rotations, you know, quick uh, speedy uh, game versus the, the game that I grew up, which which was very much a a one on one contest. Uh, you know, very big bodied. Uh, players that were, were running around at that stage. It is harder, I think, as a junior. And maybe maybe the under-18s wasn't as advanced at that stage as well um, than it is now. So I think there's a few factors that, that um, lead into that. But it is amazing that they can, can come straight out of uh, the under-18 comp, straight into to league football like that. Jason, you were taken at pick 34, of course, by the Cats. 
Many clubs spoken to you or, and had the Cats given you strong indications that they were keenly pursuing your services? Yeah, look, I, I had most clubs come and, uh, and visit me up in Upway and had uh, a number of interviews and, and it really interesting process. They, they, speak to, they speak to your school. They spoke to, um, you know, coaches that I'd had in, in football to, to assess the character and all that sort of stuff. And it's a lot, more, again, a lot more advanced now than it was then, but it was certainly starting to get there at that stage. So, yeah, look, I thought, um, I actually thought Adelaide were, were going to, uh, to take me. They, they'd shown... Uh, the most interest and, and even the, the day of the draft before the draft had called me and said they were going to take me. And in fact, they were the first club to call me after I'd been drafted to say, look, you know, congratulations and we'll watch your career and all this sort of stuff. So um, I thought Geelong may have been a chance, but um, as I said, I thought Adelaide was probably going to be the one. Jason, what did you think about coming to Geelong? Were you happy to come to Geelong? Was it sort of an easy transition for you? Oh, look, easier than going to Adelaide. <laughs> it was being uh, being still in the state. It, it you know, but look, you're 18. You're living at home. You haven't um, you haven't lived away from home before. You, you don't really know what you're stepping into, and it is all a bit of an adventure. So, um, it, it, look, it did make it easier for the family and things that that I was um, certainly in uh, in in Victoria still. It was a bit of a challenge uh, moving to Geelong, but you know what? You, you quickly adjust. You, you meet new people. Um, you build it with a family for the first year, uh, typically, just to get, your, get it, uh, yourself uh, into living away from home and having your meals cooked and washing done and all that sort of stuff. So you still feel like you're at home a little bit. But, um, yeah, look, I, I think the club was terrific in terms of that, that onboarding process. Um, you know, there's a lot of young guys that were coming at the same time um, as me. You know, there was Clint Bizzle in the same uh, year as me. There was Carl Steinford. There was... Um, you know, Adam Hall and Stephen King, all these guys, Darren Milburn, um, we, all, we all got on very, very well together. So we, we formed a bit of a click and, and made it a bit easier. Jason, I'm interested to know um, how long it takes for a young person at 18 years of age to come into a, a different environment. How long does it take to feel sort of settled, that, that you belong there, that you take sort of a bit of an ownership of the culture of the club. Is it a quick process or is it, does it take some time to sort of uh, to get that ingrained into you? I think there was a lot of um, older players when I first got to, to the football club. So to, to be able to um, impact culture does take time. Um, takes time in a business world, takes time in a, in a sporting organisation. So I, I don't think that was... That was something that I did in the first, you know, probably three years I was at the club. I would like to think that that as players started to move on and, and you know, even at, at 20 or 21, that I started to have an impact in terms of, um, you know, the direction the club was going and the culture the club um, was establishing. So it, it, it does take time and there, there, there are, um, you know, there is a bit of a pecking order in, in, um, in, a, in a football club and uh, you do have to earn your stripes and, and um and, and make sure that you you learn from you learn from others about the way things are done. That's not to say that, that that they're done right, but you learn how it is done, and then what you try to do is put your stamp on on how it can improve. Jason, the time you arrived at Kidney Park was a bit of a bit of a transitional era for the football club. We come off that uh, you know relatively successful period in some respects of, of being perennial finalists and grand finalists and. Um, you know, obviously, before the the current sort of string of success the club has had, I'm interested to know your your observations as a, a young fella coming into the club as to whether 
you could see any any scars left on the on the senior players from from their I suppose lack of success over over so many grand final appearances. Does, did that ever show itself, or was it just business as usual? Let's get on, put that behind us, and keep going. Oh, look, I don't. I, at the time, I don't think I I saw it or felt it. Um, I think looking back on it, maybe there's some some signs that there was some um, some scarring and some issues and some um, you know cultural things that needed to improve at the club. So, I, it, as I said at the time, it was it was pretty hard to you know being 18, you know walking into a, an environment where you've got you know there's a lot of 30 year olds floating around at that time that, that just seemed like they were so far in advance of, of where you were. You just soak it all in, you know. You just uh, take it all in. But, but as I look back now, I, I do think maybe there was there was a bit of change too. I think you know a lot of the the older players were very um, uh, close to Malcolm Blight, and they they always used to talk about um, Malcolm Blight and 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 how close they were and and the sort of coach that he was. So I think there's a bit of that too. There was a bit of transition to to Gary Ayres, who then had to have the unfortunate role of probably trying to move some of these players on and. Um, and, and start afresh, and, and I think that always creates a bit of tension. What was your relationship with Gary Ayres like? How did you find him as a coach? Because he had a reputation as a pretty hard man when it came to actually playing on the field himself. I oh, definitely look. He was a, he was a hard man, but I think the the, the thing I loved about uh, about Gary Ayres is, is he called a spade a spade. Like you, you never left in doubt what what he was feeling. You know, I think from a from a coaching record, I think he's you know, looking at, at Port Melbourne now. His coaching record certainly um, stacks up when you, when you put it across the uh, the time frame that he has been coaching. But I, I certainly think he was learning when I was there too. I think he'd only uh, coached what was it the, the uh, '95, and then um, you know I was there at the end of '95. So he, he was a pretty uh, new and fresh coach and trying to find his way, I'd imagine. But but had an air of certainly had an air of authority, and he's a, he's got the biggest calves of any man I've ever seen. They are, they are massive, those things. I just remember looking at those the first day I saw it. Couldn't believe it. That's very interesting, Jason. Um, <laughs> um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you were recruited as a midfielder, but were very handy for a goal and playing up forward. And that's certainly what I remember from watching you. Where was your favourite position on the ground and what did you enjoy most about actually playing? My favourite position would have been the midfield, no doubt. It was very difficult. Believe it or not, I was supposed to be rotating with uh, Gary Hocking a lot of time, but it was very, very hard to get Buddha out of the midfield. You might get a couple of minutes in the in the middle. He'd just run off and wouldn't change with you. So a uh, bit of experience there again. So, look, uh, that was probably my preferred, you know, forward uh, going uh, – sorry, mid going forward was was certainly where I wanted to play. And I, I think, you know, it, looking, looking back – at the game uh, that we played back then, it was, again, a very stop-start, very very one-on-one. I think today the modern game would have actually suited me a lot better given um, the speed of the game and the, the, you know, you get a lot of rest now, don't you? Because you, you go hard for five minutes, you're off for a couple, you're back on. I certainly think that that sort of speed endurance um, would, have, would have suited my game a lot more than uh, in the midfield, I should say, than, than what the, the older game did, which was just a pure running game, really. It was... It was um, staying in the midfield and seeing who could uh, could run the longest. Jason, I'll take you back to that uh, game against Port Adelaide in 1997 where you kicked the five goals in a quarter. My memory of that was the ball was finding you without you even looking for it. It was sort of like you had it on a string. Um, do you remember that quarter and, and sort of how it came about? Well, funnily enough, you should say that. that my son actually asked me about it the other day. So we decided to check YouTube to see if it was there, and it was. So... 
I, I can I can tell you the game was in the balance at three quarter time when I kicked the, the goals the five in the last quarter. We're up by ninety three. Could have gone either way at that stage, so you, you never know. Um, yeah, look, it was it was one of those calls. We, we absolutely dominated that last quarter. So, um, and there was a lot of space. The ball was moving quickly. Um, had guys just absolutely pinging it straight to me. But you're right. There was a couple of times where it just came out of nowhere and landed in my hands, and you know I just kicked it and. Uh, so it was one of those days that uh, we're, we're well, certainly one of those quarters where everything went right. Jason, you uh, you featured in an interview in the Geelong Advertiser with Josh Barnes a, a few weeks ago. Uh, and we uh, we acknowledged the uh, the article from the Geelong Advertiser, uh, and you mentioned in that article if we if we go back to the incident in two thousand and one that you surmised pretty quickly that you were in a bit of trouble. Um, <laughs> take us. Take us through the moment and, and what goes through your mind at that particular time when, you, when your foot's basically just hanging there. Yeah, look, it was. I remember it like it was yesterday, to be honest. I, I remember where I was on the ground. I remember the, you know, the smell of the air. You know, even, even today when it's a, a lovely day like it was, um, it was an April day, and I, I still re- I just remember that, that feeling. Um, I was coming up from just at half forward at the MCG, uh, went to take a mark, and I remember out of the corner of my eye um, seeing Roddy Burns um, by himself. So as I'm taking the mark, my intention was um, land, give him the handball, off he goes. Um, so that's why when I took the mark, you can see I land, obviously had injured myself, but I, don't, I didn't feel it straight away. Um, and I stood up because I wanted to give that handball. That was, that was the, the thought process. Um, but as soon as I stood up and went to put my foot down, I realised the foot was hanging to the side a little bit, um, and I, I could see—I uh, I couldn't see the, the, the bone, or I could see something uh, poking out in my uh, in my socks. So um, certainly realised I was in a, a bit of trouble there, and immediately sort of took my mouth guard out and threw it because I knew I was in a bit of trouble, and um, sort of sat down and, and was waiting for the uh, for the trainers to come out, and um, Gary Hocking ran up. He, he was in the midfield, so he just came across and um, he saw what was happening. And I don't know if you remember the footage, but he's holding my head so that I wouldn't look at my foot because he could see what was going on um, at that end, of the, uh, that end of my body. So um, we had a few, uh, a few calamity of issues that happened after that. But um, in terms of, you know, getting on the cart, I was apparently the first person to get a motorised cart off the ground. But what they didn't realise was that the cart didn't actually fit down the race. So, uh, first of all, they got me on a stretcher and they were about to carry me off. They said, no, no, you're supposed to be on the cart. Okay. So then they put me on the cart. The cart wheels me off. It's bumping. So, it, you know, my foot's hanging out. So it's bumping. on. The, and I remember just going, ah, like this in pain. Um, gets to the, uh, the gate. They realise, oh, hang on, we can't, we can't get the cart down. So they have to take me off that. They have to put me on the stretcher again and they have to wheel, you know, take me down into the, uh, the rooms and, and, by that stage, I still hadn't, hadn't had any painkillers and um, got into the room and, and the, the, uh, the doctors actually, the medical bag was on the bench, not down in the room, so they didn't have painkillers um, with them. Um, and luckily enough, uh, uh, Dr. Jan McGiven, who, who uh, is, is the best doctor I've ever uh, seen and, and, you know, a good friend, uh, good friend now and good friend back then. So she, she had done the seconds game and she realised that... that um, the doctors hadn't come back up the room, so she knew something was wrong. So she had a medical bag. Um, lucky the twos were playing, obviously, at Punt Road that day. So she, she brought the medical bag down and, and realised that I hadn't had painkillers probably 10 minutes into, um, you know, it felt like 10 minutes into to that, um, that period, and, and she, uh, she took control. So she uh, injected me up uh, 
to take away the pain. Um, but there was a few issues in that the, the foot started uh, turning white because um, it was lacking blood supply. Um, so I'm in the rooms, and it, it, apologies if it gets a bit graphic, but they had to had to literally pull it out and pull it back in to, to straighten up the, the foot just to get the blood supply um, uh, back into the uh, to the foot. Um, and I, I could feel all this, and I was kicking. I was kicking, I remember kicking her with my other leg because it was in I was in so much pain um, as they're trying to pull it back around. And um, the ambulance finally arrives, and and um, they give you that that green puffer, which. Um, for, for those who have had it, is, uh, is some pretty serious stuff in that. I tell you, felt pretty good after after having a few pumps of that. So, got into the uh, got into the ambulance, and just to quickly finish it, got to the um, got to the hospital, the Freemasons Hospital I was at, and the ambulance went up the wrong way up uh, the emergency. So the ambulance is going over speed humps the wrong way. <laughs> I can laugh about it now, um, and. Uh, it got me into the, uh, the front of the hospital there and I had a, a cannula in the arm straight away. So they, they knocked me out. And because I'd put my foot, because uh, I'd, I'd put my foot down to stand up when I had taken the mark, um, I used to wear really short socks and um, uh, the sock had actually come down and I'd actually put my the, the bone onto the MCG so there was grass in it. So they had to, wow. for, the, uh, for the next uh, couple of hours, I was in surgery and I was picking out the grass and I was straightening the ankle. Um, and then uh, I came out of, of theatre and then I had to go back in again to have another second operation uh, that night to, to put um, screws and, and all that sort of stuff in and, 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 um, and a plate to fix up the, the broken leg. So pretty full on, mm. pretty full on. At, at that stage, did, did they sort of give you an indication that, that you know, it could well be a, a career-ending injury or were they, were they rather upbeat and positive after they'd done the surgery? Um, I had another surgery a couple of days later. So, so what had happened is it, it had sw uh, swollen so much that the slab they put on, they had to cut it. And I think they had to put two different slabs on over the next couple of days because it kept swelling so much and, and the pain was, it, it was unbearable. I remember my, my parents were actually away um, that weekend and they came back down and I sort of woke up the next morning and there's mum next to me and um, we had a there, was a, there was a drip in my arm and every five minutes you could press for more medication and, and mum was that was mum's job so every five minutes she'd just hit me up with more medication just because it was in I, oh, I what it, mums for. can't describe how much pain I was in it was unbelievable but um look it was probably I was in hospital for 10 days um I you know I certainly asked I remember coming off the ground going how long how long um and they said look it's going to be the season you know obviously see what was going on um but because I was in so much pain and um, had to go through so much in the hospital. I, I probably didn't have really get a chance to have that conversation for the first seven days um, around where it was at. And, and I was really, you know, you then try to come off the medication because you, you've got so much in you that you've got to sort of take a bit of time to, 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 to come off it. And um, I probably had that conversation then. And, and it was, at that time, it was, it was all positive. It was, you know, the joints taken a, a really severe, um, and that, that's what, cost me then was the ankle joint deteriorated to a point where they couldn't fix it. Um, that, that um, it, you know, it was going to be the year, you're going to have a lot of time to rehab. Um, you know, the, the break of the bone was secondary. It, you know, that, that'll be fine. But it's how the ankle joint actually now recovers and we can't tell. Um, the other part is I had nerve damage. So um, I couldn't feel my foot and, uh, and, and subsequently it was probably about three months later I had to have a, a nerve graft from my right leg into my left leg so that, 
Um, so I took a, a nerve that only supplied a little part of my, my right foot, took that out and put it into my uh, left leg so that um, I could gain some partial feeling back in my foot. So, it, yeah, I think it, it, at the end of, it, at the end of the day, it probably it, it was it was touch and go. Um, they were always very very positive and wasn't really towards yeah, it wasn't until probably another fourteen months after I'd injured that where the realization happened that, that I wasn't going to play. We're speaking with sixty eight game cat Jason Snell, and the severity of the injury is something that you can sort of see in a measured way now, Jason, but I dare say that um, as time unfolded in the uh, the immediate after that, um, there would have been a mental struggle as part of that journey as well, just as you came to terms with the severity of the injury and, and the potential ramifications. Can you take us through what that was like for you? Yeah, look, I think there certainly was, but but I'm, I'll counterbalance that, but I'm, I'm incredibly positive and and don't like to think that way. And, and, and I think that I just wanted to get back and get going and get moving and, you know, set little goals and keep working towards them and all that sort of stuff. Not to say that it wasn't hard because it, it was incredibly difficult having to, to deal with, with all that at a young age and, and seeing the guys still going and playing. And, you know, obviously I was living with a player at the time as well. And you're seeing all that. And it is, it it is a challenge. Um, But I, I I don't think that I probably realized the full impact of that challenge until again after I'd finished because you're so stuck in the moment. You're so, um, well, I was anyway, that I'm stuck in the moment. I just wanted to, first of all, you know, I think it was probably six months on crutches or something. It was, it was outrageous. And then you get off the crutches and you start walking and, you know, then, then, you know, a few little setbacks here and there, and then you start sort of to, to jog a little bit, which was a huge milestone. And, you know, you're thinking, you're thinking things are going forward. Um, and, not realising that that all the things that I was doing was probably impacting um, the joint even more and, and 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 causing a bit of damage. But yeah, so I think in hindsight, yes, I think it was certainly challenging mentally. But but at the time, as I said, you're just so stuck into what you're doing. You just you've got that goal of getting back and playing again, and that, that's all you can really say. I'm absolutely just amazed, Jason, by what you went through and and your ability to tell that story. I'm sure you've told it many times before um, by now. Um, but at what stage did you realise, I don't think I am coming back from this? And then how did you make that transition into life away from football and finding a career away from football? Yeah, so look, it, it got to a stage where I thought that I was a week away from, from probably playing. I, I, I trained, but I was training on a really modified schedule. So if I trained on a Monday at the start, I couldn't train for another week. And then it got to, I could train on the Monday, and I could train on the Friday. And then it got to... I could probably train three times a week, but I was, it was really sore, like really, really sore. And I remember one day, um, you know, things were going well, um, trained really well, came off, and I just thought, this is not feeling right. And so I stood up, went home, and sitting on the couch, just in all this pain, like it was just, it was numbing. And, and I got, got to stand up and I couldn't put weight on it. And uh, I had to get pee back to bed. Like I just could not walk down the corridor to bed. And I thought, nah, this there's something not right here. So on the phone to the doctor the next day, went up and saw the specialist, um, uh, Mark Blackney, who, who had, had probably exhausted all his avenues. Um, so he arranged for me to go and see a gentleman in Sydney by the name of Kim, uh, Kim Slater, who, so both of those guys are, are the best in Australia in terms of, of, of lower legs. And, and went up and saw Kim. And I remember, I remember when I was talking to Jan about going up there in the club, about going up there, the club said, look, we'll send someone with you. I said, no, 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 it's fine. Look, 
positivity again. I'm thinking, I'm going to go up there and this guy's going to have the cure, you know. Um, I have the recipe for success. So I said, no, no, don't do that. I'll, I'll go up and do it. I'm, I'm just going to fly up and fly back in the same day. All good, you know. Um, so I jumped on the plane, got up there. Again, you know, seriously not thinking that, that, um, that I was going to hear the news that I did later that day. And I you know, got in a taxi. Had to, I remember it was out in Crow's Nest somewhere and I spent a lot of time in, well, I did spend a lot of time pre-COVID in Sydney. Um, traveling up and down and uh, so went there I actually haven't been back to the place I should go and try to find it again but um, got there went into the the the, uh, the waiting room and um, went and saw Kim and he got me to do tests that I hadn't done before so he got me with the next a live x-ray but to put weight on the ankle to see what was happening and I went out and uh, you know getting all the the, the x-rays and, and tests and all that sort of stuff back and I went to grab some lunch and came back and and he said, um, and I, I remember his words like it was yesterday. I sat down uh, in his surgery and he just looked at me. He says, uh, Jason, you, you'll never play football again um, and you'll be lucky to walk without a limp for the rest of your life. We need to fuse your ankle. I'm like, what? Take, you know, take me back again? What, what's happened? So up go the x-rays and he, he shows me that, that what was happening, um, you can imagine an ankle joint and we can see it obviously, but my ankle joint was slipping every time and that's what was causing all the pain so all the the joints around the the cartilage um the bones themselves were, were getting damaged and um he said this is the situation that um you know ankle replacements we don't tend to record uh, to, to recommend for, for people who are 23 um you know because you do need to probably get them changed every seven years at the moment the technology wasn't right at that stage to to go and do that so the only course of action you've got is a fusion but if you do go down an ankle fusion route you can't have a um, uh, you can't have an ankle replacement ever because um, the joint is a is a is a solid block effectively. So I'm sort of holding it together, and I'm, I could feel I'm getting emotional in, in the in the room, and you know, holding it together, holding it together, trying to ask the, the relevant questions, but just you know, I was a bit shocked. And I remember, you know, you get to the front, and you've got to sign for the the the, the session, and, and then then you you open the doors to the surgery, and you're out on a, a main road. Cars going past, people walking around, and I've just had my life shattered. And you're there, and I just burst into tears. And I just walked up up and down that street and um, called called the club, called the doctor, called my parents. Um, you know, talking about it all, and and you know, um, and was lucky enough to got to the. I said I'm going straight to the airport. I'm coming home. So got got to the airport, got on an early plane. Remember just sitting in the in the on the plane had sunnies on. I'm just crying sort of thing, and you know landed and and um, the parents came up and, um, and grabbed me from the airport and, and went down to uh, Geelong where, you know, a few mates were there and I didn't want everyone to know at the time because, you know, just had to deal with it, just, you know, that situation as it was and got back home and just, you know, literally they'd all come around to see me and I gave him probably 10 minutes. So I just got to go to bed. I just wasn't right. So, um, yeah, and the next day you wake up and the reality, the reality hits that it's, it's all over and you've got to go through that process. Jason, I'm interested to know um, your feelings on when Geelong ultimately broke that 44-year premiership drought and won the flag in 2007, because you probably would have been an elder statesman in that team, I think, with that, with along with Darren Milburn and Stephen King, who were your contemporaries at the yep. time. Um, what was the feelings like? Did you have a sneaking feel like, if only I could have been part of this team, or was it that you'd fully reconciled the 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 your life circumstances at that point. Yeah, I look straight after footy. I, I got into business really, really quickly, and and was 
um, growing a business at that time. And that really took me away from, from footy a lot. And I probably didn't engage with footy a lot either. Like I, I wouldn't go to games and, you know, I didn't go back to the club for a period, not, not out of spite or anything. You're just so busy doing what you're doing and, and you know, your life taking hold. But, but as the years go on, you start to watch a little bit more and the club becomes a little bit more successful or starts to look like it's going to be successful. And in 2007, I, I certainly was all over that. And, um, and you know, watched the game. Didn't didn't actually go to the game. Uh, went in two thousand eight, unfortunately. Shouldn't have. But um, two thousand seven. Watched it on TV. I remember just crying at the end of it as well. Just you know, sitting there going. And I remember just that I did have that feeling that that could have been me. And um, that night, uh, I took a mate of mine uh, with me, and we we went into the the celebrations at, at, at Crown. And I remember you know all the guys coming up and putting the premiership medallions around, and Stevie J giving his Norm Smith and you know, all this sort of stuff and, and just really feeling a part. I, even though I wasn't there, um, I felt a real part of it that, um, uh, you know, all the trainers coming up and, and staff and all that sort of stuff that I probably hadn't seen for a period of time, um, making me feel that, 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 that I was part of it. And I think that's the, that is the beauty of the Geelong Football Club. And, you know, under Brian Cook, who I, who I still keep in touch with to this day because I've got huge respect for, for Cookie, um, you know that, that that's the kind of culture they've built, which is which is just outstanding. That's that's a great lead-in, Jason, because my next question was going to be around, um, you know, what happens to an ex-AFL footballer who's who's injured himself as severely as as you have um, in the course of a game. I mean, I think a lot of people think from the outside that you know it's a nice little handshake, thanks for your time, we'll see you around, off you off you go, sort of thing, but. You know, in actual fact, you know, as you say, you still talk to Cookie now, the 2007 experience. So it's sort of like once you're a member of the family, you're a member of the family, aren't you? Yeah, you are. And look, remember all the players retired, you know, that I've played with um, have have uh, have long gone. Gaz June is still just holding on. Um, so, it, it you know, you, you still catch up with these guys now. They, they've all finished their footy and they're moving on in their lives. And, and you know, I had done that a lot earlier. So I have seen countless amounts of, of AFL footballers come to see me about um, how to take a transition out of out of football, what to do and how to do it, and who to speak to, and all these sorts of things. And and so I get it, and and um, it is it is a uh, you know it is a challenge that that next step, but it's one you just got to stink you, you know your teeth into like um, you did with it with a footy career. But yeah, look, I, I can't speak highly enough of the Geelong Football Club. Just to get to your question, it was. You know, they, they were absolutely outstanding throughout that whole process. And again, you know, it's Brian Cook at the end of the day that, that drives that. And, um, you know, the, the, the culture and the, the setup of that footy club is just, just amazing. So, you know, they, you are part of it. You know, you, you, you see, um, you know, I go to, I live in Yarraville and we go to uh, the, the um, Whit Noble if the, the twos are playing and I'll stick my head over and, you know, throw a bit of uh, a few barbs at some of the older trainers that I don't think should still be running around. Um, you know, just to, just to to stay you know active and involved with it all. So, it, you know, and they it, it's like I'm still there. They say the same things they they said to me 20 years ago, and you know they still think their jokes are funny. So it's that you know it is that's that nice feeling of a football club, isn't it? That, that if you've been around a club environment, that, that it is just such a special place. Just to uh, just to draw things to a close, Jason. Any any current involvement in football in in either a, a coaching or an administrative sort of capacity? Um, I did uh, sit on the, the uh, board with the, the Geelong Cat Sports Foundation for a period of time, and 
um, which was a charity to raise money for the Kinnear Park Sporting Precinct. And, you know, Frank Costa was on it and Brian Cook and these guys were on it, which was a terrific experience. So I stayed involved in the club in that respect from a, from a business uh, sense. Uh, my involvement in footy now is, uh, is, is with the under-14 Yarraville Seven Eagles uh, as assistant coach. I don't want to coach my son ever, so I'm happy just to sit back and, and help and, and, and guide and direct where I can. Um, but but uh, not uh, certainly not to coach him because I think you know that, that my son loves his footy and, and you want him to, to take his own path and not have me get in his way and and try to give him advice on things that he, he'll find out as well. So um, yeah, absolutely love love my love my local footy to be honest. And we there's a number of mates around the area. We go down to the when it is on um, pre COVID and, and after COVID. We go down to the, the footy oval and just love watching the. Uh, the local footy and, and getting involved that way and having a kick like we did as kids. And it does feel that way still, but, you know, these club environments are just outstanding. Well, Jason, it's an absolutely amazing story and uh, one that we've we've thoroughly enjoyed talking about with you tonight. And uh, to see where you are today after after such an horrendous situation is just a, a great joy for us all. And uh, unfortunately, you know, 68 games promised so much and uh, certainly uh, one of the uh, the fondly remembered players of that particular generation. And it's been a great pleasure to catch up with you tonight and uh, talk a little bit about the journey. And, and hopefully we've, we've helped you to uh, to relive some, some good memories as well as the, the not so good. I thank you guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Jason Snell, our guest tonight on the Cats Whiskers. This week in uh, Team Talk, uh, Gus Samarini not uh, with us uh, tonight, but uh, we're still going to have a look at his Team of the Week. And uh, this week we're uh, in the period of COVID-19. We thought we'd have a look at social distancing, heroes and villains. That's uh, a group of players who we uh, look at in terms of either being very close checking or, uh, as we like to call some of them, wide receivers who uh, don't really get too close to the action and then keep their uh, social distance. So let's start with the uh, the back line, uh, Anthony uh, Pekovic. And uh, at, uh, in the back pocket, we've got uh, Stevie J's friend, uh, Stephen Baker. Uh, fullback is the fullback of the century, Stephen Silvani. Uh, and in the other back pocket, uh, a man who used to like to uh, get in under the packs and play it hard and tight, Brownlow medalist Brad Hardy. Yes, Hardy was a great player, but he was one of the one of those defenders who never played on an opponent. He um, in one interstate game, I think he had ten goals kicked on him, and he still won the medal for best of field. So that tells you a little bit about Brad's form. Stephen Silvani was not the fullback of the century; he was the wrestler of the century. He was the rock before the rock. He would just envelop himself around um, these poor forwards and and never get free kicks paid against him. A real umpire's favourite. And Stevie Baker, my goodness, he used to infuriate me. He infuriated his opponents. If he had the coronavirus, every person he comes into contact with would get it. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, him and Stevie J have a long, long and valued friendship, uh, which goes back to uh, Stevie J being somewhat injured and Steve Baker trying to see whether the injury was actually fair income. Let's uh, let's have a look at the half back line now. And here's, here's some real hard nuts for you, I've got to say here. And the halfback flank, we've got uh, a tough player from the Essendon Football Club from the 80s, Shane Hurd. At centre-half back, Mickey Gafer from the Magpies, who was the uh, probably the, the one of the very first taggers 
that uh, we knew in the competition. And on the uh, the other halfback flank from the West Coast Eagles, Mark Hutchings. Well, Shane Hurd's an interesting one because when he started his career, um, he had the nickname of footsteps, as in Hurd footsteps. But people got that completely wrong. He was as tough as they come. And I remember one of his claim to fame was when Kevin Sheedy, as an interstate coach, smuggled him into, sta- into South Australia for a state of origin game. He took a different flight, flew under a different name, went to the ground on his own. Even his teammates weren't realising that he was going to play that night. And all of a sudden, he emerged in the change rooms and played. He was a terrific player. And Mickey Gafer, he was just uh, one of those rock-solid defenders who just would never let go. We moved to the centre line, and uh, personally, I think the the first player we mentioned here on the on the wing is uh, is the ultimate in in wide receivers, and I'm sure that there's going to be Carlton supporters everywhere throwing uh, things at their uh, radio or their uh, podcast sort of uh, location when uh, we mentioned this one, but uh, I don't think we ever saw him anywhere near a pack at all, and that's uh, Carlton's uh, Craig Bradley, who uh, possibly is the uh, the king of all wide receivers. In the middle, Shawnee Denham, the former Geelong player, finished up at Essendon and uh, was a, a great in-and-under player. And uh, the king of taggers, as they are at the moment, from uh, GWS, Matt DeBoer, who gets up everybody's nose at the moment. Well, I think you're right about Craig Bradley early in his career, but as his play developed, I think he, he his style did change. But early on in his career, he definitely was a player who was a definitely an outside player, as they call them today. Mind you, I, I too was a bit of an outside player, so there's nothing wrong with being an outside player, as Jerry Seinfeld would say. Um, Sean Denham was... Uh, Reinvented himself as a from a just a average rover to a run with play, a real tagger, and I know Greg Williams just loved belting him, um, but uh, but it was a well earned belting because he was very effective in upsetting the great Greggy Williams. And Matt DeBoer is another player who reinvented himself after a, a career of not doing a great deal, found a role for himself with GWS, and G plays it well. I think uh, just picking up on Anthony's comments there about Matt DeBoer, I. I concur with him with regards to the elevation in the quality of game that Matt DeBoer, or the, at least the level of effectiveness that Matt DeBoer has in any given game. But I find it fascinating that a player should elevate his worth to a team by simply keeping an even better player to a, to a limited potential in any given game. So it's, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, really, when your negativity is something that is applauded. So uh, I find that quite fascinating. But, I mean, that's the, that's the rule of thumb when it comes to taggers. That's what you need. Every side needs a, a, a stopper, as we used to call them in the old days, um, because when, another, when someone from the opposition gets loose and creates havoc for your uh, midfield or defence, you need to have a shutdown player who can limit the effectiveness of that player. Cam Guthrie plays that bit of a role at Geelong. Uh, he's not a freewheeling player. He takes responsibility for an opponent. And those, those players are certainly most valuable in today's footy. And I think there's a, a growing trend towards those run-with players being actually able to double back and actually make their opponent work on them. So, you know, Cam Guthrie is a good example where he'll shut someone down, but he's still dangerous if he gets near the ball and he can do something with it. So they have to be just as watchful of him, I think. And that's that's sort of becoming a bit of a growing trend now in, in tagging players. So let's go to the half-forward line now in our uh, social distancing heroes and villains. And on the half-forward flank, current Carlton player 
Ed Curnow, who's uh, becoming quite a, uh, a valued run with player himself. Uh, instead of half forward, my word, he would be close and he would be hovering just above your right ear with a, um, a well-timed elbow at times. Uh, Carlton and uh, Sydney Swans, David Rhys-Jones. What a player he was. And on the other half forward flank, uh, former Geelong player again, a bit of Geelong flavour here, uh, and uh, also uh, had some time at uh, Brisbane and Essendon. Uh, Blake Carousella, who was a uh, another one of those link type players. He certainly was, and um, Blake Carousella, of course, played um, a, a pivotal role in Essendon's 2000 Premiership. Ed Kerno is uh, a local boy, actually, Geelong College boy, uh, featured in their only winning uh, APS grand final team in 2006. Um, so that was his claim to fame. And of course, the player everyone loved to hate, and that's David Rhys-Jones. I can still remember the the final at the MCG, Carlton Collingwood, many, many moons ago. And uh, I, I was there as a neutral observer, and I think it was Dennis Banks that cleaned up David Rhys-Jones. And I was sitting about 50 rows back from the front and I could still hear the crunch from where I was. That was how hard it was when those two hit each other. And didn't we enjoy it? <laughs> Every second. <laughs> Let's go to the forward line now. Um, in the forward pocket is uh, another uh, great receiver in uh, Kane Corns. Uh, at uh, full forward, interestingly at full forward, is the uh, the paddle pop line himself in uh Cameron Ling, uh, a captain, a premiership captain of Geelong, but also a great run with player as well. And uh, on the other forward pocket uh, from Fremantle, Ryan Crowley. And interesting, uh, Anthony, I saw, uh, saw uh, Ryan Crowley in the crowd recently when uh, Geelong played Fremantle. And I understand that just his mere presence at the ground caused uh, our captain in Joel Selwood to be a little bit nervous, even though he was in the grandstand. Yeah, Joel would have been nervous. If Stevie Johnson had been on the field, Ryan Crowley probably would have followed him out there. So um, a very close associate, I think that's what the police say, of suspect types, a very close associate of Stevie J's. Um, Cameron Ling, of course, one of uh, Megan's favourites, and Kane Corns, nobody's favourite, uh, whose career with the Fire Brigade lasts about five minutes. And I think, Anthony, he's gone on to continue to be nobody's favourite in the media as well. Mark might want to add some comments around that one. But certainly Cameron Ling, absolutely one of our favourites as a past Geelong captain. His leadership was outstanding. Uh, his tagging outstanding and his ability to get the ball off the foot really quickly was one thing that I was certainly impressed by. And he did used to be a forward, I believe, or I understand, before playing for the Cats in his earlier days. So probably quite handy in that position. But Ryan Crowley... Uh, one of my most disliked opposition players ever, and I will leave it at that. You're right about Cameron Ling there, Megan. He, when he played with the Falcons as an under-18, he was a full forward. And um, I wrote in one of my uh, the margins of my footy record watching the under-18s play next to Cameron Ling, I wrote, too fat, too slow. How wrong oh. was I? <laughs> You're a harsh, harsh man. I'd love to read some of those. Uh... Yeah. I'd love to read some of those footy records of yours, Anthony Petrie. They'd got to be say, libelous. They'd be libelous, Wes. Ryan I'd Crowley. Have to be checked by my legal representative. 
Ryan Crowley, um, just such an incredibly effective stopper as we discussed the, the worth of a player that can play such a negative role. It was really interesting in the process of working with Gary Ablett Jr. on, on the book that's coming out later this year. And he spoke about Ryan Crowley's tactics and the mind games that he plays and the conversation that he carries out during the course of any given game. Um, that's a little teaser for the book. You're all going to have to buy the book to find out. I'm not going to tell you anymore. Look out. Wes is doing the promotional tour already, Anthony. Very good. Good on you, Wes. Never waste an opportunity, I say. Absolutely. And just uh, Megan's point about uh, Kane Corns, unfortunately, the rules of libel and slander prevent me from saying any further. <laughs> Let's go to the Ruck Division now for our uh, social isolation heroes and villains. And the, the Ruckman... Well, by gee, you wouldn't want him to be anywhere near you on a football field, possibly one of the most dangerous eaters of 14 sausages in a sitting. Uh, from a uh, former Geelong player and uh, now at GWS, of course, I speak about the big mummy in Shane Mumford. And the Ruck Rover, uh, one of the great players of, uh, of the Sydney Swans. He really was their culture uh, and a great uh, tagging player too in, in Brett Kirk, Captain Kirk. And... If you wanted the ultimate in close checking and physical type people that would be not ideal for the coronavirus situation at the moment, the rover of this team is an absolutely perfect choice. With all apologies to my mother, but from the Western Bulldogs or Footscray as they were at the time, Tony Liberatore. Well, it's funny, those three players are three, three favourites of mine for a whole host of reasons. Tony Liberatore's career is remarkable from a player who was rejected, turned over, ignored, um, written off, to win a Brownlow medal as he did in 1990 was enormous and to reinvent himself as a run with player, yes, a tagger, but he was most effective. He could get the ball himself quite easily. He was a terrific player. Brett Kirk was the talked of as the spiritual leader for the Sydney Swans and if ever a player deserved to play in a premiership team, it was... Uh, it was Brett in uh, 2005 under Paul Ruse, breaking that long premiership drought that uh, South Melbourne and then Sydney Swans had. And, of course, Shane Mumford, um, a terrific player. If there's one player that we, that we lost over the years that we could turn back time and persuade him to stay at Geelong, it would probably be Shane Mumford particularly when we sit and look at our, our ruck situation at the moment. And, and, and all credit to Reece Stanley, he's currently playing some very good football, possibly the best footballer of his time at Geelong at the moment. Um, but certainly uh, Geelong would have a, a lot different look about them. And uh, Patrick Dangerfield, Joel Selwood and co would be walking about an extra foot taller, I think, if, uh, if Shane Mumford was in, in the first ruck for Geelong. Yep, spot on there. He, he could be an enormous difference um, for GWS as the season rolls on. And um, no Ruckman would be enjoying the prospect of coming up against him. Uh, what's the most sausages you've eaten at a sitting, Anthony? One. <laughs> How do you think you'd go with 14? Oh, 14, I'd, I'd probably be... Uh, I probably wouldn't be with us, uh, Mark, <laughs> now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, that leaves us with the uh, the coach of our uh, social distancing heroes and villains, 
and uh, he's he's the reigning AFL Premiership coach at the moment. Uh, started his career at Essendon under Kevin Sheedy, moved, moved over to Port Adelaide, was a member of their Premiership team over there, and now the successful coach of the Richmond Football Club, Damien Hardwick. And Anthony, he was a he was a hard nut in the football field too, and uh, was a very very close checking player in that uh, Port Adelaide Premiership. He was with Bob. Port Adelaide, and of course he won a premiership at Essendon, where there was in a he was in a back line with the with the Johnsons and McVeigh and Dean Solomon. Um, that would have been a nightmare for opposition forwards coming up against those guys. So there we have it, our social distancing heroes and villains, Wes. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, thank you to you all for being involved in this week's podcast. Anthony Petkovic, Megan Holtz, and Mark Brunger, on behalf of the team. We thank you for listening in. This podcast, of course, is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, including Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public and Overcast, along with being heard throughout Perth on Sport FM 91.3. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.